It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to this Torch Book at Lunchtime event today. It's great to see such a good crowd and to feel the buzzy atmosphere. We're celebrating images of Mithra. Uh, I don't have a copy to hand, but there we go, just on high, wonderful. <laughs> We're here to celebrate this really remarkable book, which has been co-authored, not edited, but co-authored by no less than five pairs of hands. Philippa Average, Robert Bracey, Dominic Delgleish, Stephanie Leck, and Rachel Wood, with Josh Alsner as general editor, and a number of these named uh, authors are here today. So to discuss the book, we have Dominic Delgleish, who is project curator with the Empires of Faith project, and also a doctoral candidate in classical archaeology here at Oxford. And we also welcome his co-authors, Philippa Adridge and Rachel Wood, who I already mentioned, who are here in the audience, not on the panel, and perhaps they can participate in the... And Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd see... I'd see. Yes, so there's no less than three co-authors who are also present in, as part of the audience, and I'm sure we'll be happy to pitch into the discussion later. On the panel, we have Peter Stewart, and um, I should just say that Joe will give more extensive introductions, but just to give you a quick handle, we have Peter Stewart, Associate Professor in Classical Art and Archaeology in Classics uh, here at Oxford. We have Richard Gordon, who is Honorary Professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Associate Fellow of the Max Weber Center um, at the University of Erfurt in Germany. Uh, we also have Robert Bracey, who is from the British Museum and um, is involved in a project there on South Asia and Southeast Asia in the, in the first millennium. And chairing the event is Josephine Quinn, who is Associate Professor in Ancient History here at Oxford. So it's a wonderful um, interdisciplinary panel here today. For those of you I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting, I'm Elika, Elika Burma, I'm Director of Torch. And I'm also um, in world literature here in Oxford in English and the English faculty. As you have seen, today's event involves academics right across the humanities, uh, and it's also a flagship event in our, not only our Book at Lunchtime series, but also our Humanities and Identities series. Um, this, is, this is ongoing, on-running, all the way through 2017 and into into 2018, right to the end of the year. And what we're looking at is multiple um, areas relating to diversity, diversities of race, gender, sexuality, poverty, inequality, but also um, religion and faith. So um, that is in particular, I think, what we will be focusing on today. And we'll continue to be staging some really wonderful events, uh, events like this, um, lectures, seminars, all the way through next academic year, so do keep an eye on our website to see what's on. It's all very, very exciting and busy. But for now, I'd like to hand over to Joe Quinn to introduce the panel and to chair. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you, Alika. It's a real honour to um, be chairing this session on a completely groundbreaking book, both in terms of its content and its format. Uh, groundbreaking in terms of content in that while most studies of what we might call big history, studies of phenomena across cultures, take either a comparative or a connective approach, 
what this book is doing is taking a series um, of phenomena, images of a deity called something like Mithra, um, across a very uh, wide swathe of Eurasia, and uh, taking a, 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 this set, which has usually been studied as a connected set, and in particular in terms of those connections with a real focus on origins, um, and studying it instead largely in a comparative way, which brings a completely fresh perspective um, uh, to not only uh, the study of uh, Mithra himself, or, or the set of ideas that are Mithra, as the authors would probably put it, um, but also to the way we think about uh, representation in ancient religion um, in general. And then in terms of format, as Elika said, um, it's this rather extraordinary uh, thing of a, a collectively written book not only a series of chapters by different authors, but actually written in a collective voice with unsigned chapters. Uh, that there is a cheat sheet in the acknowledgements. Like that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting set of ideas um, in both respects. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Um, for those of you who uh, are not regulars at uh, Book at Lunchtime, um, the way this is going to work is that I'm going to give uh, some of the authors of the book a chance, first of all, to just introduce the book in, in, in their own words. Um, and then we're going to have more substantial comments from Richard Gordon and Peter Stewart. And then the authors will have a right of response. They're all going to keep very carefully to time. Um, and then we're going to have time at the end for uh, hopefully quite a bit of discussion, Q&A, that kind of thing. Um, what I'll do is I'll introduce the people just before they're speaking. You've already had the kind of outline from Elika of uh, who we've got here today. Um, but I'll start off with the two co-authors, in fact, that we've got um, uh, on the panel today and, and three more uh, in the first row. <laughs> um, so the two people here are uh, Dominic Dalglish, um, uh, who, um, as Elika said, is doing his DPhil in classical archaeology at Wilson College also researcher on the Empires of Faith project that's between the British Museum and Oxford. Um, and he's also a lecturer in ancient history and classical archaeology at Worcester College, my own particular interest in this. Um, uh, before that, he was uh, at Durham uh, University. He did his uh, BA in ancient history and MA in classics at Durham. And we also have an unadvertised visiting star, um, Robert Bracey, uh, who is, works at the British Museum in the Coins and Medals Department as a researcher on the Beyond Boundaries ERC projects. Now, I asked uh, Robert, sorry, Robert Bracey, I asked Robert where he was before that, uh, and he told me um, that he was born in the British Museum. So, <laughs> do that. Um, so can I ask you one, both of you, to just give us a couple of minutes on the book? So I guess, uh, you know, just thinking about this before, how to, how to introduce it. First question has to be, why, why Mithra? Um, and I think the easiest way to respond to that is probably to say that it's a big problem. Mithra is difficult, and therefore we should speak about it more. And people have actually been speaking about it for an awfully long time. And in fact, it has its own discipline within classics. There are Mithraists, of which um, Richard is probably a... Uh, uh, an extraordinarily well-known and important member. So it's great to have that feedback today. But there are, it is such a big subject in a way that there is always something more that you can do with it. And because we are coming from a project in Empires of Faith where we brought together people who work on southern, uh, southern Asia, people who work on northern Britain, there is the opportunity to 
to have these kind of discussions, to have these very large discussions about big problems. And Mithra has to be one of the biggest problems in terms of religion, in terms of spreading ideas um, in the ancient world. So that's really the topic. Why the book in its current form, or why images? Well, we are all, again, uh, working with material culture. We work in the British Museum, and it's very, very convenient that uh, uh, more than one object that is featured in the book uh, is in the museum, so we can actually work with them. Um, but it's also because the way that Mithra has usually been approached in the first instance is to come from texts, to come from the Avestan tradition, uh, the, the Iranian tradition, which is very, very old, to come from uh, the Rig Veda, uh, and so these, these, these texts, which form such an important part of how we start to think about Mithra, have dominated. And it leaves very little room for appreciating the images in their own right. So we thought, why don't we just do that and start with image by image uh, and build up from there. And that's essentially what this book tries to do in six chapters. Put an image, put an object at the heart of it, and then see what we get. So... I hope that's an adequate overview. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you, Tom. Um, okay, so we're now going to move on to our two uh, responses to the book. Um, and the first uh, speaker is going to be Richard Gordon. Uh, as Dom said, Richard is one of the world's leading authorities uh, on Mithras, on the Roman cults uh, of Mithras. Um, and as Elika said, he's an honorary professor in the Department of Religions at the University of Erfurt, um, and he's currently working, in fact, on uh, the social history of Greek and Roman magic. Thanks, Richard. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to uh, Philippa, Adrich, and the Empires of Faith Project for inviting me to come uh, to Oxford. Um, and uh, to, to talk about this very handsome book, which Oxford University Press has produced brilliantly. Um, now, I haven't coordinated what I'm going to say with Peter, I'm afraid, though he says he sent me a mail last night, which I didn't get. Um, but I assume he's going to talk about visuality, but it turns out he's not. Anyway. <laughs> I'm not competent to talk about Comagini or the Kushan or the Sasanian uh, religious areas, so I'm afraid I'm going to talk mainly about, if indirectly, about Roman Mithras. Now, Roman Mithras is peculiarly fascinating. No ancient religion has induced so many reproductions inside museums. You go all over, the, all over Europe and you can find mock-ups of Mithraea in Newcastle, in... Uh, yeah, 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 and so on and so on and so on. And this is, and this is really peculiar, I think, because it shows the, the, the underswell of popular enthusiasm or interest in this god. But when I started working on it, Mithras was a dead dodo. It didn't exist, really, and all this has happened in the 40 or so years that I've been working on it, which has nothing whatever to do with me, but mainly with a chap called John Hinnells, who now lives just outside Oxford, and unfortunately I don't think can be here. But it was he who started, uh, the, who had the idea of creating a conference on Mithraic studies, which invited uh, Iranianists, uh, archaeologists, and Roman historians 
together in Manchester in 1971. Now, inevitably, given the weight of information and the, the mass of archaeological artifacts that are available, the, the weight of research has been or a of a narrative kind. Where does it come from? What is its history? And the only place in which you can get away from that has been precisely things like the Acta of Conferences, like the one at Manchester, which did indeed have separate sections uh, uh, which, which attempted to minimise the, the, the narrative impetus. So I see that visuality today in this book is attempting to set a new agenda to escape from this tendency to narrativity. It's inherent in visuality studies that the individual onlooker is privileged. It may be disguised, this privilege, but it's nevertheless there. And that leads directly to diversity of sense-making. Because once you have ego as the interpreter, there are as many interpretations as there are egos around. Okay? So that visuality seems to be inherently diverse, diversifying. Now, that leads me to ask, how important was it to choose Mithra or Mithras here? Because in fact, the same applies to any god in a polytheistic system. We think only of the epithets of Zeus, hundreds of epithets of Jupiter, dozens of epithets. They're all institutionalized ways of multiplying the facets of divinities, the disagreements within the totality of a cultural imagination. Now there are two devils here. The first one is Dumizin, and who directly inspired the, the, the Centre Jean Germain and uh, the, the so-called School of Paris to create images of, of, of divinities which had a whole coherence and structure. So the French obsession with different forms of Apollo, or the German obsession with finding the true Mars, and so on and so on and so on. We don't need to go into that anymore. Secondly, there is the fancy that gods are persons, they're people. And underneath that, the idea that communities can agree about the identity of these people. There's a double fault there. Now, in Erfurt, in the Lived Ancient Religion project, we have a slogan that says, gods are not persons. That's where we start. Gods are instantiated fictions. Okay? They, have, they require, in order for their instantiation, to be constantly laboured at. So, investment is absolutely central in polytheistic survival perhaps all religions, investment is central. And what are investments? They are resources and power. The instantiation of, uh, uh, and, sorry, and who is able to allocate these resources and of what kind? Those are the crucial questions. Who has the power to allocate the resources and to choose which resources are to be invested? So the instantiation of religious systems are always a political social matter, and thus involves a constant struggle for control over who has the right to allocate. 
and how and where. So I see three levels, institutionalization on the one hand, material, the material level, which includes, of course, the natural world, and thirdly, the performative level. All of these three, I see, are best seen as forms of investment in the creation of fiction. And visuality is just one aspect of this material level, obviously. Now, the, the importance of materiality studies is that, that uh, every artifact, every object, every culturally appropriated thing is a transformation of the world in a specific direction. A choice has been made about what the world should be like in relation to this object or statue or whatever. That means that every, uh, every material object that's created is a closure of options. All the other options that could exist have been excluded. At the same time, as, as visuality studies insists, once you have an object, the number of evocations from it are potentially unlimited. No one can say, you've got it wrong, at least in a polytheistic system, and nobody wants to either. So, the, the, uh, the image is always, in this sense, A, political, and B, both a closure and an opening, and a, a, a suggestivity. And this is obviously a dynamic and never-ending process of constant closure and constant opportunity. And it's at this point that one needs to talk with Dersertot about appropriation, which I'm afraid is a word that does not appear in this book, and ought to. Uh, and we can distinguish very roughly between two kinds of between two levels of appropriation, uh, can't we? The immediate face-to-face -face appropriation, I give this to you, I show you this to you, and so on and so on, and longer distance appropriation. And of course, the more, the longer the distance, the greater the opportunities for selection. Okay, so appropriation is all about selection, modification, assimilation, isn't it? So that you cannot expect long-term translation to be, <laughs> in any sense, satisfactory. It's always more or less radically creative. So what are the implications of all this for writable histories? And I think writable histories is terribly important, isn't it? Because we're not thinking about up in the world. <coughs> we're thinking about how to write on in an academic level on certain subjects. Okay. So what are the constraints on writing Mithra? It seems to me obvious that you cannot follow every possible evocation. It's just mad. It could be this, it could be that, it could be the other, and so on. Where does that get us? It doesn't get us anywhere. So the, the practice of writing involves a limitation, a deliberate limitation, upon the number of evocations that you're prepared to take into account. Okay? So that writing implies a kind of lying. A, 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 a refusal of what you know to be true in the world in order to be able to make sense to a reader. I remember when I began to write on Mithrasa, I started by listing all the inscriptions. And, and of course, what's good of that? <laughs> you can't just list inscriptions, even though that's how you came across them. You have to think quite differently. So, what I would like to see in, in this project more is a more robust notion of agency. More concrete agents doing things, choosing, operating. Secondly, more focus on institutions as forms of power. Institutions are not present, really, in this book, I think. 
And what about materiality beyond visuality? What about rituals, faces, objects, and so on? They're all missing uh, because of the fixation upon God. Okay, so what difference does this book make? Now, the bottom has dropped out of all the big narratives, the grand narratives about Mithras. The story about the decadence of Roman religion, the story about the rise of Christianity, and most recently, and in little letters, astral allegories. The bottom has dropped out of all those. Okay, so what new stories can be told? Now, one is obviously Beck, Roger Beck's cognitive study account of star talk, which I don't approve of. Uh, but I agree it's possible as a model. Uh, secondly, Anya Klöckner's notion of memory space, the Mithraeum as a site of memory, recalling myth, constantly reenacting myth and so on. Depending upon Asman, I'm sorry, I'm just about to end. My, and my own focus upon mystagogues, that is, in the Weberian sense, the creators of small organisations who dictate and, and, and rule what's going on, who is allowed to do what, and so on. For me, these are absolutely crucial figures in this whole story. Okay. Now, the question is, is visuality, then, a powerful enough to, uh, idea to act as a counterbalance to the desire for historical or pseudo-historical narrative? Time will tell, but I hope you go on. Thank you very Sorry, much, Richard. <laughs> That's fine. Um, we now go on uh, to uh, Peter Stewart. Um, Peter is, well, I want to say he's one of our experts in uh, Eurasian cultural exchange, you know, but people don't like experts anymore, so I'll say he's one of Oxford's, Oxford's thought leaders in, in this area. Um, uh, so in addition to uh, being Associate Professor of Classical Art and Archaeology uh, uh, here in Oxford, uh, Peter directs the um, Classical Art Research Centre uh, at the Classic Centre. Um, and uh, one of their uh, most exciting um, projects at the moment of the many things that they do is the Gandharan Connections uh, project that he um, is running there, which is in, a, in, in some ways a kind of parallel uh, sort of project um, uh, process to, to, to the one that um, we're seeing here. Um, so, Peter. Thanks very much. My watch has stopped, so I'm going to guess what eight minutes is, but please All right, I'm, do I'm going to have my little... Rob, can I have my little paper back? Are you ready here? Um, <laughs> I thought I, I would start by saying what my first impressions of the book uh, were. Um, as a, a classicist, a classical art historian, who... Uh, is not a Mithraist. I, I haven't done research on, on this topic. Um, and for me, notwithstanding my interests in Central Asia that you alluded to, all through my career, the, the, the Persian connections of Mithras, the Eastern connections of Mithras, have been a kind of no-go area. Um, and perhaps that's out of timid, timidity on my part. But since I was a student, I've assumed that any attempt to think seriously, for non-expert, any attempt to think about the, the origins of Roman Mithras cult, um, or, or for that matter, Mithraic doctrine in the Roman Empire, um, will, uh, is dangerous territory and has to be avoided. So my focus, insofar as I've dealt with Mithraic uh, imagery, my focus has been very much on the works of art 
themselves. Uh, and in fact, um, the comparative homogeneity, uh, comparative consistency in the iconography of Mithras in the Roman Empire uh, has seemed to me to lend these monuments um, uh, particular value as a sort of control for looking at uh, Roman uh, artistic culture across the provinces, thinking about how the shared uh, visual vocabulary is changed as it appears in different parts of the empire th throughout the empire. So that's, that's the background to my first impressions of the book. And, well, my very first impression of the book is the appalling uh, uh, misprint of the title, uh, Images of Mithra, where the S, of course, has been left off. <laughs> um, but uh, beyond that, I have a bad habit of reading books backwards, uh, starting with the index, because you can often learn an awful lot about a book from, uh, from the index. And in the index, or the indices of this book, we have immediately visible et penny, vishka, ormazd, weshu, map, circutal, and so on, and so forth. And then imagine my surprise, I'm still reeling from that sort of vocabulary in the index, when I find, reading backwards, that the, the next chapter back is about Quetzalcoatl and the, and the Aztecs. <laughs> <laughs> All of this is to say that this is not a typical classics book. Um, and for me, it's very exciting what the authors have tried to do, looking across different cultures, including as Central Asia, which I'm interested in, but other cultures as well, um, and trying to adopt new perspectives. And I think, I'm sure there's lots we can talk about, uh, about the benefits of juxtaposing the case studies presented collectively by the authors in the various chapters. But, uh, as I suppose any good book should, uh, th this book for me has raised probably more questions than it's answered. And there are a number of these that might come up in discussion, but there are at least a couple that I particularly wanted to, to emphasise. Things that are niggling in my mind as a result of uh, reading this book. And one thing that particularly strikes me is that the authors have, have tried very hard to unsettle some of our rigid assumptions about cult in the Roman Empire and the Sasanian Empire and so on. And they've presented Mithraic imagery and Mithraic <clears throat> cult in general as being very fluid, in flux, open to reinterpretation and reinvention and translation. And in fact, they've emphasised the diversity that may have lain behind the apparent visual homogeneity that I've said existed in, in Roman Mithraic art. And yet, one thing that's very striking is that despite that, this book remains a book about different cultures. Uh, it is a, a cross-cultural study. It looks at the Roman Empire, the Sasanian Empire, Bactria, and even while trying to make connections between those cultures, the idea that borders of some kind exist between them remains intact. Mm. Now, that might partly, uh, if one has been critical, one might say that, that that's, a, you know, that's a modern mindset, that even these very interdisciplinary and collaborative authors haven't man managed uh, to break out of. And there might be some truth in that. 
but it also seems to me that this reflects something about the material culture, the visual culture itself. It reflects something about the evidence on the ground. Uh, and if one thinks, for example, about this familiar body of Mithraic imagery across the Roman Empire, with consistent elements going right up to the river Euphrates, right up to Dura Europus, and then something else that it would seem beyond the Euphrates, uh, Taki Bostan and then moving, moving east. That's really extraordinary. Why can we, why is it possible to talk about those distinctions or to take those distinctions for granted rather than a more complex um, continuum of uh, changing Mithraic imagery? Now, I know that the authors have tried actually to tease out such a thing and particularly thinking about the complex relationship between Bactria and uh, and, and the Persian Empire. Um, but it seems to me that trying to understand why, whether there is a real cultural border there and why it exists might tell us something very important about the nature of Roman culture and more specifically the nature of Roman imperial art. The other thing that I think I particularly want to pluck out is really the elephant in the room, if one could pluck <laughs> the elephant in the room through much of this book, at any rate, for me, was the question of origins. And the question, the question of the, what I want to call the genetic links that manifestly exist between at least some of the traditions being studied by the book. Even the word traditions, let's not say genetic, let's, the word traditions implies some, some need to think about origins, connections, the, the <coughs> mechanisms by which uh, ideas and images move. And uh, in the conclusion of the book, the authors do come to address this explicitly. And I sense that they were agonized about it. <laughs> On the one hand, a recognition that this is a problem, that we have to try <coughs> to understand what what's going on behind the scenes of these, uh, as it were, finished products, <coughs> different traditions of Mithraic uh, cult. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, a, 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 a yearning not to be sucked into some kind of Cumontian vortex. <laughs> and uh, what they say at one point in the conclusion is, is it really so bad for us to assume that some connection did exist? <laughs> to which I think their answer ultimately is, is Sort of yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, both at the very end, as in the introduction as well, the idea of ideas, the, the movement of ideas as a way of getting away from gods as personalities. Now, I have some anxiety about ideas being slotted into the god shaped hole that has been left. Um, has Mithras or Mirhu or Mithra become a kind of cipher only? Is when we talk about ideas, is, is this intellectually intellectualizing something? Is, is it even logocentric? Uh, uh, and when we start to put the emphasis on names and labels, even looking at names and labels in a very dynamic uh, way. Um, so what is lost from this very exciting and stimulating attempt to cast off some of the baggage of past scholarship? Thank you very much, Peter. All right, you've had some challenges laid out for you here. <laughs> you've now got four minutes each. <laughs> but it's fine. Right.
Robert, let's start with you. Oh, so there's a lot to respond to there. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose I, I suppose going back to the very beginning of the comments that were made, um, one of the questions that was asked is uh, why Mithras, Mithra, in in particular, because this was kind of pointed out, you could explore this idea through a variety of visual culture, and. And I think one of the things that is difficult and that we recognise, and I think is always important to recognise, is there is just a certain amount of historiographical baggage uh, with any group of people and what they are likely to all know something interesting about that they could put together in a comparative frame is limited. Um, and we could, of course, have used Heracles. Right? Heracles could have served a very similar function um, and, I, and I think was considered in, in some of our early discussions and would make a really interesting comparison because, of course, the difference between Heracles and Mithra is that Heracles is not Heracles. Heracles is Heracles and Verithragna and Vajrapani. So Heracles is different in that and where God. Yeah, and, and where people choose to to label, they change the label. And whereas by approaching the problem through Mithra, we were able to explore the issue of labels, not just our labels, which we attach, which of course <clears throat> the Mithra of the title is our label, right? But the labels that those who were literate and could engrave things on stone in a format that was survives long enough for us to see it, might attach to the uh, to things. So that posed in some ways a particular sort of problem we wanted to engage with. And that in itself is historiographical baggage from coming from a large project about comparative mm. um, studies. So I think that was the, the sort of first thing I thought that was very interesting to uh, respond to, and I'll let Don respond to the <laughs> elephant in the room about uh, origins. In fact, you want to tackle origins now, because I think that's... <laughs> um, well, first of all, thank you very much. That's really incisive uh, critique, as we were expecting. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I sort of, I don't know, I mean, you know, challenge me on this, but I would guess that origins actually and the issue of agency are not so very far removed that Richard was talking about and that Peter, uh, in terms of origins. Um, because it is, it is this flow, it's this line, what connects all of this stuff and how do we deal with it? And I also then think we are having to tackle the lines of the cultural boundaries again that you, uh, that, that Peter quite rightly pointed out. I mean, in part we do, you know, what do you tackle and do you tackle it all at once? That's obviously an issue for us. And um, um, we are unashamedly um, fairly junior academics as well. And, you know, this is a big learning process for us. We just hope it's also made for an enjoyable book at the same time. So it's not just a game. Great book, by the way. But, the, but, the, but one of the issues actually with, the, uh, with power, I suppose, and with, the, you know, with talking about Gandhara, with talking about the Sasanian Empire, um, is actually the proximity of royalty and power to those uh, images and objects. 
So it's impossible not to talk about the kingdom of Comagene in the context of Antiochus I's uh, uh, grave uh, stele and other productions there. And it's impossible not to talk about uh, the Sasanians in the context of the rock relief at Tekabostan, and so on and so forth, and indeed coin productions in Kushan. That might have led us to talk about the Roman Empire in such a way as to also kind of position it there. But we did try to raise, I suppose, the relationship of, uh, of, of Mithras uh, to the Roman state in some way, and you can in particular do that through the army. Um, so I think uh, Philippa explores that in the second chapter, Philip Radjic explores that in relation to what we think the Roman army actually is as an entity. And again, we can only do that within the context of Julia Europos, but um, I think it's quite effective there. So I, I suppose that's, that's not adequate in terms of the larger picture you were talking about. And on that level, on the origins question, it is, of course, um, that, you know, the scholarship which uh, Richard's alluded to, uh, this, you know, and France Cumont has come up, and for those who don't know, he is the great Belgian scholar to really give a name to the subject, to basically invent the subject of, uh, uh, of Mithras studies, of Mithraic studies. Uh, and Cumont wanted, a, wanted to connect all of these different instances up together, to draw a, uh, to draw a web, a spider's web of connections, if you like. Um, we didn't see ourselves as being that Cumontian spider. Um, so then how do you deal with these different iterations? And really it's then just to raise the question of what is the significance of a prototype, be that in name or in image? What is that? Uh, and I guess that's part of the question we're posing and we don't have an answer for it because it's, it has to be um, what a larger project like ours does in terms of empires of faith, talking about moving visual uh, uh, patterns, ideas, I don't know, ideas again is faulty. We know it is, we know it's imperfect, and we don't want it to slot into just being gods again. But it's, those are the questions that we're trying to approach, I suppose. Um, more discussion, I think. Robert, inter interrupt me. <laughs> I think I, that's a, a good set of points. And the institutions of power, the way sort of power, because of course that controls resources and we've only got these things because resources were invested, I think is, is genuinely important. But it also feeds into that discrepancy in our evidence, that way that a cultural boundary seems to align with a political boundary. Because in the East, uh, Taki Bastan, um, on Kushan coins, right, we have images that are either we label Mithras or are labelled with, but they are made by institutions who we have some understanding of independent mm -hmm. of their association with Mithras. Yeah. Whereas when we step across the cultural boundary in the other direction, that's not the case. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, we could... But on the other hand, if you want to sort of turn those around to talk about origins, one of the things that we kind of bring... I, I hope it comes out in the book is that virtually everything we're talking about is of the same time. Yeah. It's, it's, we, we, we haven't got a simple progression that the Kushan material is early and then the, yeah. the actually the Sasanian material is amongst the latest of yeah. the... So this... Um, to try and then fit that to a question of origins, you're right, is a question that is always hanging there saying, I want to be answered, but to try and fit this to that before you have first given these things mm. their own 
treatment in a way that does justice to them. And, and that was one of our biggest concerns in writing it because it was very much a co-authored effort in which um, there are sections of um, our discussion of Bactria and Gandaria that were written by Philippa and there are sections that were written by Rachel. So, you know, the, it's working together on that. But the most important thing was that the Kushan Empire, the Sasanian Empire, don't simply become stories we tell purely to answer a question about the Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> you know, and because that would naturally distort. We would not, could not have written the chapters that we did if we had gone to those parts of the world looking for the answer to the question, why does this cultural boundary seem to occur along this political boundary? Because we would have asked the questions in terms of Rome. We would never have introduced Surya, what Chinese pilgrims thought about the worship of the sun, yeah. right? These, these are central when you view those places as their own centers, but peripheral when you're asking yeah, a question that's indicated from the West. So I think we, you didn't want us to go on too long. So no, that was perfect timing. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so many thanks to all of our speakers.